0: You probably know this from simply living life and being a human that we were not created to be alone. We were not created to be in isolation. In fact, in prison, that's a punishment to take a prisoner and put him in isolation. And those who are there in isolation for too long of a period of time do go insane. Because we are not made to be by ourselves. We are, we're created by God to be in relationship with others. Now, I find the story of Adam very interesting because Adam realized that he was alone and God paraded the animals in front of him to see how all the other animals had a partner, but he didn't. And also to show him that all the other animals were there, but they weren't appropriate partner for him. And uh, if you've read the newsletter this morning, I want to apologize to you ladies already, okay? If If you've read it, Uh, If you haven't read it, you'll understand what I'm saying when you read it, because it is about Adam, and it's about God, and how Adam got Eve. And so I I put it in there because it seems like in today's culture, uh, men and husbands are always the the brunt of the jokes. You know, we're the ones who are stupid and imbeciles and don't know how to do anything. So I thought at least one joke that kind of put ladies in a bad light would be, okay, since us men seem to get them all the time, okay? So take it as a joke, okay? That's what it is. Don't take it too seriously. But it does talk about Adam and Eve. How God Created Eve, okay? You'll have to read it, but not right now, okay? You read it later. Now, animals are a big part of our lives. I mean, the the pets we have, I mean, how can you look at a face like this and not just melt? And they're more than just animals. They're part of our family. Uh, The dog we used to have didn't like to be touched at all, but the dog we have now, we've had him for six years. Sarah and I have not had a moment to cuddle on the couch because the dog is always there right in the middle. And he will even nudge his nose under our arms or whatever it takes to separate us so he's right in between us. So I know how loving they can be, and and cats can be cute too. And even though the cute, cuddly cats and dogs and animals that we have as pets do comfort us and do help us and are a big part of our lives, they're still not a substitute for human relationships. That is what God has created us for. But too many times we do go to our animals because they are often loyal. They don't judge. uh, They don't uh, talk back. uh, They don't hurt us or sin against us. And so we realize that in our human relationships all that happens. And it hurts. And the people in Malachi's day were in relationships with each other and it hurts because they were not doing them in the right way. Too many times in our relationships we're like this slide shows us, I, heart, me, we're in the relationships for ourselves. And aren't some people, the only time they will make friends with someone is if they're going to get something from it. And the only time they will be close is if they get something, they may, may manipulate, they may do whatever they can to make sure that they are receiving all the benefit. Others are a little bit more generous. They calculate and figure out that if I can get something out of this relationship, then I'll give into it. But if I have to give too much, I'm just going to cut this relationship off because I'm not getting anything out of it. But in reality, what God calls us to are relationships where we benefit others. We help others. This is kind of a a silly picture here. There's an elephant holding an umbrella over some animal. I couldn't figure out what kind of animal it was. But anyway, it's some animal. It says, help people even when you know they can't help you back. The point is this, obviously that animal is not going to be big enough to hold an umbrella over that elephant's head. Only the elephant can help. The other animal can't help the elephant. And so we should look at relationships, not in what we get out of them, but how we can benefit the other person, how we can help them. And that's what the people of Malachi's day weren't doing. They weren't looking at relationships and how they were helping others. They were looking at them and only how they... We're being benefited. So God tells them in Malachi 2.10, this is God speaking, but He speaks as though He's talking like the people. He says, Don't all of us have one Father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? What God is saying is that, listen, you... Jews are family. You're not treating each other as family. Parents, haven't you had to do that with your children when they're fighting? uh, A brother against brother, a brother against sister. Don't Sometimes you just tell them, listen, you're family. Why are you fighting with each other? Why are you hurting each other? Your brothers, your sisters, act like it. Love each other. And that's what God was saying to them. Look at the picture of this wonderful family. And think about good family relationships, because I know there are examples of bad ones. But when we think of good families, they love each other, they stick up for each other, they sacrifice for each other, they don't allow anyone outside of the family to destroy what they have, they would do anything for each other, they are united and they are connected. And it's a great and beautiful thing, isn't it? When family has that closeness. And that's what God is saying to the Jews of Malachi's day. Look, you're family. Treat each other like family. You're treating each other like you're enemies. You're treating each other as like you're strangers and you couldn't care less. But you're family. And that's what God says to us as Christians too. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. We're not each other's enemies. Although we often judge each other and complain about each other and maybe even uh, try to compare to each other, maybe look out for ways that we can be better than others. But Paul tells us in Philippians not to do that. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Paul says, your family, treat each other that way. Notice how Paul says that we are to... Consider other people better than us. I think the reason we do that, because when we do that, we're more likely to treat them well. If we look down on someone, think of them as inferior to us, then we're tempted to treat them as an inferior and expect them to serve us and expect them to benefit us and expect them to go out of their way for us rather than us helping and serving and loving them. So Paul tells us, don't look at each other as inferior to you, but look at other people as superior to you. Then you will treat them right, and you will treat them well. And when you make decisions and you do things, don't simply do them because you want to get the best for you, the most for you, do what you want to do. Think about other people. How is what you're going to do affect them? If you're going to do something, maybe you should sacrifice so that someone else can enjoy it. Someone else can benefit, rather than you always thinking about yourself. And why would we do that? Our culture tells us to look out for number one, and look out for ourselves. Because no one else is going to do it, so we need to do it ourselves. But the reason we do it is because that's what Jesus did. The verses in Philippians continue to go on to describe how Jesus left heaven, how Jesus was obedient to the Father, how Jesus died on the cross, how Jesus humbled himself. If that's what Jesus did, then that's how we should serve, humble ourselves, and look out for others. Jesus gave up heaven and gave up his life for us who are sinners. If he did that, then we should do likewise for each other. In fact, the New Testament is filled with verses that tell us how to treat one another. I show you this slide, not so that we can read every one, but just to overwhelm you with the number of them that are in the New Testament. You can scan the screen and pick out a few if you'd like. God tells us to love each other, to forgive each other, to serve each other, to humble ourselves before each other, to welcome one another, to live in harmony with each other. And it goes on and on and on. Doesn't it show us how important it is that you and I live with one another in harmony and Christ-likeness? God wouldn't have spent all this time teaching us how to treat each other well if it wasn't so important to Him. This is how people outside the, the family of God should see us. And when they see this, they should say, I want that. Too many times people outside the church look at what goes on and they see bickering and fighting and jealousy and envy, and they say, well, you can keep that. I've got that at home. I've got that at work. I've got that in my neighborhood. I don't need it at church, too. Rather, they should look in and see, wow, look at how they forgive and how they love and how they serve. I want that. Because I need that. And that's true, we all need that. That's how God has created us, to need that. And that's why He's created all of us, so that we can provide that for each other. This is how our relationship should be. Every single one of them. For the benefit of the other person. Building them up. Considering their interest as well as our own. And humbling ourselves before each other. The people of Malachi's day did not do that. And God warned them that their relationships were out of whack. Now the closest relationship that any of us have, or the closest human relationship is between husband and wife. I know the relationship between parent and child is close. And it can be close between siblings. And it's close between friends. But in reality, and you know this if you're married, the closest relationship we have is husband and wife. And so that's what God focuses on in Malachi's day. All of their relationships were messed up. And to prove his point and to show where it was really messed up, he goes to the men especially and the marriages and warns them and chastises them for what they were doing. And so God says to the people, Judah has acted treacherously. And a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. So what's God talking about here? He's looking at His people, and this people have left their family, the fellow Jews of their day, and have gone and married foreign people. The men especially have gone and married foreign women, And because of that, God is angry at them. Now you might think, why would God be angry that someone in Jerusalem marries someone from Egypt? Why would that make God angry? Well, I guess first, He had forbidden them to do that. So anytime God tells us to do something and we don't do it, or in this case, He tells them don't do something and they do it, it's going to make Him angry because it's sin, it's disobedience. Let's look at it even more carefully. When God told them not to marry, it had nothing to do with race. It had nothing to do with ethnicity. It had nothing to do with nationality. It wasn't just the fact that a Jewish man was marrying an Egyptian woman. That made God angry. It always had to do with relationship between God and the people. And this is what God didn't want to have happen. He didn't want his people who were to be close to Him and worshiping Him to marry someone else and then start worshiping those gods and start following that faith. See, it was always about God wanting the people to have faith and worship Him and Him alone. And so what happened then has happened through history and still happens today when there's two competing faiths in a family. They both can't be first. Religions and faiths are often contradictory. So if they're contradictory, how can they both work in a family? And so what happens is usually one of them becomes the predominant one. And often is the case, it's the the wife or the mother. Her faith becomes the predominant one in a marriage, in a family. And so what God is saying to His people, Look, I want you to be close to me. I don't want you worshipping other gods. Yet you have brought other gods into your families by marrying people who worship other gods. And look what's happened. Now your children are worshipping other gods. You're worshipping other gods. What happened to our relationship? What happened to worshipping me? And that's why God never wanted His people to marry people of different faith. King Solomon is a perfect example of someone who did this and how it got him so far from God. Remember, Solomon was so close to God in his early years. Remember, God came to him and asked, told him, Solomon, you can have anything you want. Just ask. So this was better than a genie. <laughs> a genie, you rub the lamp, a genie pops out, gives you three wishes. That's a fairy tale. This is God. He says, you can have anything you want. Solomon says, I want wisdom. And God was impressed. So God said, I'll give you wisdom, and I'll give you wealth, and I'll give you long life, because you didn't ask for those, like most people would have. But as he went on with his life, Solomon married one wife after another wife after another wife. Why he would do that was really for treaty reasons. It's hard to uh, have war with your father-in-law, or maybe it's not, but I mean, at least in those days, you know. If he was married to all these princesses, then the countries would be at more peace. So it was more strategic than it was for love's sake. But still it was against God's command. And what happened is what God told the people would happen. As he married more wives, they brought their gods. And in fact, at one point, Solomon in the Lord's temple has idols to foreign gods that he's bowing down to because his wives are bowing down to it. And that's exactly what God did not want to happen. And so what does it mean for us today? Because we're not Israelites, we're not King Solomon, but really today we are told to do the same thing. We are told not to be unequally yoked. That's what the King James says in 1 Corinthians 6. What's God talking about? What's Paul talking about? Well, as you see in this picture, a yoke is what's put on the shoulders of animals so that they can plow a field together. If you've got a tall animal and a short animal, it doesn't work, as you see in this picture. That big horse, there's no way he's going to get low enough to be on an equal plane with that smaller one. And vice versa, that smaller, whatever it is, ox or something. I don't know. I don't know my animals very well. So anyway, God is saying, it doesn't work. You can talk also about it being mismatched. Okay, Maybe you can make a fashion statement with mismatched socks. Uh, our daughter, Ashley, likes to wear mismatched socks just for the fun of it, okay? But most of us look at it and think, fix it. <laughs> it's not right, all right? But anyway, so whether it's unequally yoked or mismatched, Paul is saying, God is saying, what do these things have in common? They don't have anything in common. They can't work together. You know, How can Cowboys fans and Redskins fans be together? <laughs> oh, thank you, Brandon. Let, let, let's look it out, brother. All right. Maybe we can have something in common. (laughs) We can have Jesus in common. But Paul's point is this. When there are two things that are opposite or two things that are so different, they can't come together. This is how he says it after this dad joke. I couldn't help but put it in here. I can't date you. We are unequally yoked. You see the bigger yoke? Anyway, all right. I told you it was a dad joke. 1 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be mismatched. Do not be unequally yoked. Do not be partners with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What Paul is saying is, we are Christians. Uh, We are alive in Christ. We have our sins forgiven. We are free from sin. We are free from Satan. We are free, and this is who we are. How can we have close partnership with someone who is a slave to sin, someone who's a slave to Satan, someone who is not alive in Christ, someone who's still in darkness, someone who doesn't believe. How can those two things go together? They can't. So that's why Paul says, that's why God says, don't try to put them together. So the message still is today for Christians, when you marry someone, marry a believer. That is God's command for us even to this day, as it was in Malachi's day when they weren't doing that. And it even really goes beyond marriage as well. I I believe that our closest friendships must be with believers. Of course we are to have friends and relationships with non-believers. That's obvious. Paul even says that because the Corinthians got confused when he told them this. He said, I didn't mean that you never have any relationship with an unbeliever. He says, if you had to do that, you'd have to leave this world. I mean, there's no way you can live on this earth without having relationships with unbelievers. And in fact, the only way you can bring someone to Christ is to find someone who doesn't know Christ and bring them to Christ. But your soulmate, that's who you're looking for in marriage, and your closest friendships, your closest partners, those people that you are living life with and are um, close to really do need to be believers. I'm not saying you can never have a friend or even a close friend that's not a believer. But if you are sharing values or trying to share values and, and activities, and how can you do that with someone who's opposed or, uh, to what you are and who you are? So still, that is the message for today. There's one more thing in Malachi chapter 2 that God condemns the people for. And that is how the men were divorcing their wives. Malachi 2.13 And this is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. Yet you ask, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. This is what God is saying to them. The men were offering sacrifices, they were praying, they were asking for God's blessing. God wasn't listening. They were crying out, Oh, woe is me! Why won't God listen? And God's saying to them, You're hypocrites. Why would I honor you? Why would I bless you? You're pretending to be righteous. You're pretending to be concerned about godliness. You're pretending to be close to me by offering me sacrifices, but you could care less what I say by your actions. Your actions show you disregard my commands. Your actions show that you disobey me. Your actions show that you have acted treacherously against your wives. So I'm not going to listen, I'm not going to bless you. God would say the same to us. Why would God bless us if we are in sin? Why would God bless us if we're running away from Him? Why would God bless us if we're hypocritically pretending to be close to Him when we're far from Him? If that were the case, we should expect from God to discipline us, to bring us back to Him. So God says, I'm not going to bless you. You need to listen to what I have to say. And this is what He says to them. So what was happening, not only were they marrying foreign women, they were divorcing their Jewish wives to marry the foreign wife. So it was double sin, if that makes sense, or double disobedience. So God, I guess, was doubly angry with them. I know today we could spend hours debating what God says, the Bible says about marriage and divorce. We're not going to do that. But I am going to tell you briefly what God says. And we won't have debate, and maybe you would disagree with me, but, and I won't spend hours on it. But it's important because it's right here in Malachi chapter 2. This is what God says. Marriage is between one man, one woman, and they are to remain married until they're separated by death. That is God's ideal for marriage. Jesus says this, haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. I want you to know that Jesus' Jesus's words here are direct answer to a question about divorce. It was a hot topic in his day, as it is in ours. And in his day, some rabbis said that men could divorce their wife for any reason. The toast is burnt, you're out of the house. I'm getting another wife. That's all they had to do, is write the paper, say, see you later. There was another group that was a little bit more reasonable, and said there had to be certain grounds for divorce. And so they would debate each other. And so they try to drag Jesus into the debate. They wanted him to pick a side. They wanted him to pick a party. They wanted him to, to pick an opinion. So I, I kind of think about this. This isn't the only time it happens to Jesus. This is a aside. But I know today the Republicans will be trying to get him on their side. The Democrats on the Their side, You know, it would be a political party or it would be a religious party. This denomination would be trying to get Jesus on their side and this denomination. And I know what would happen today, just like it did in Jesus' day, he wouldn't join any of them because he's above them all, because he's the king of kings. And every response he gave in the New Testament showed them that their debates among themselves and their parties and their sides, uh, they could have it, but Jesus wasn't going to be dragged into it. That's just an aside. I want you to know this because this is Jesus' answer to their question. And his answer is, God's ideal from the very beginning, because he goes back to the beginning when Adam and Eve were there and no one else. God's ideal from from the beginning, one man, one woman, married for life until death separates them. That's the ideal. That's what Jesus says. He doesn't make any ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's the ideal. And so, with that, the Bible says the ideal is no divorce. Look what it says in Malachi 2.16. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And the one who is guilty of violence, says the Lord who rules over all. Pay attention to your conscience and do not be unfaithful. Jesus also said this in Matthew 5. In this context... It's the Sermon on the Mount, if you're familiar with some of the words from that. In fact, uh, Wanda last week shared some of that from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about those who are blessed. And he talks about giving. He talks about praying. And what He often does in that sermon is He says, You have heard it said. And when He says that, what He's talking about are the religious leaders of His day. Because this is how they would teach. They would stand up, I guess, very uh, sanctimoniously and say, you know, like, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that, and Rabbi so-and-so has forgotten about what the law says here, and Rabbi so-and-so got it right here. And so my conclusion is that with all these sources and the research and the rabbis, that this is the answer. That's how they would do it. That's not how Jesus did it. He said, let me tell you what the truth is. Let me tell you how it is. He just cut right to the chase, didn't mention any other rabbis or anything else. Why? Because he's God. So he says in the Sermon on the Mount several times, this is what you've heard. Don't listen to what you've heard. Let me tell you the truth. So I want you to know the context when he says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's what Jesus said in light of what all the rabbis were teaching about divorce. But I want you to notice something, even in that statement that Jesus made. He says, except, doesn't he? He gives a reason where divorce... Would be appropriate. You might even say allowed. And he gives an an exception sexual immorality. In fact, Paul also gives one in 1 Corinthians 7 when he talks about an unbeliever and a believer married. We were talking about that earlier, right? In that case, the unbeliever says, Goodbye. I don't want any of this church stuff. I don't want any of this Jesus stuff. I'm leaving. And Paul says to the believing spouse, let them go. Let them go. Be at peace as much as you can. Let them go. So there are two exceptions in the New Testament where God says divorce is permitted. Now you might look at that list and say, wow, it's a short list. (laughs) It's only got two. What about some other things? I can think of some other things that should make that list. What about abuse? Why isn't that on the list? Why isn't uh, just abandonment in general? Someone just basically leaves you. Why isn't that on there? And you can make the list longer. Well, I do know this. We're talking, sometimes maybe we're talking about two different things. I certainly know this. If there's any abuse in any relationship, you need to get out, whether you're married or not. But certainly if you're married. But again, you can be separated without getting divorced. And I would even say this, with these exceptions, it doesn't require divorce. There can be sexual morality in a marriage and not be divorce. There can be an abandonment and not be divorce. Because I always know this too. God always can change people. And God can bring forgiveness. And God can bring reconciliation. And in fact, in fact, in the Bible, the prophet. Hosea's wife was a prostitute, eventually. She was forgiven and reconciled to him. So I want you to see that there's no requirement and there's always opportunity for reconciliation. Let me say this as the last word as well. Sometimes Christians do divorce for unbiblical reasons. And if you press me for an answer, I would say that's sin. But I would also say this God forgives sin. There's no unpardonable sin. Divorce isn't an unpardonable sin. Once you do it, God kicks you out and you're never in the family again. Any sin that we commit when we confess and repent, God forgives. And the Bible makes this clear and it makes complete sense. Let's say there are even two Christians who are married and they divorce. And it wasn't on biblical grounds. They were just selfish. It's sin. Let's say they remarry. You could argue that's sin. The Bible's clear. They're not supposed to divorce their new spouse (laughs) to go back to the first one. That's like two wrongs trying to make a right. That's not going to work. So if that's the situation someone finds themselves in, they make the most of that marriage. Confess their sin and make that the strongest, most godly marriage on this planet. That's what they're to work towards. So as I said, we could debate. You could argue with me. I could tell you more. But I want this just to be our brief discussion of this topic because it's right there in Malachi. And I want us to see that in all of our relationships, this is what God is telling us. Pay attention to your conscience and do not be unfaithful. That's in all of our relationships. I know there's people here today aren't married. These verses in Malachi are still for you. These verses are for our relationships, even if we are married between people that we're not married to. That we are to be faithful in our relationships. Going back to what I started with. Considering others. Considering others better than ourselves. Treating each other as God has commanded us to being faithful and loyal in our relationships, loving and and giving and kind. That's how we are to relate to people because God has created us to be in relationship with people. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have not left us alone. God, we know you're always with us, but I'm thankful for the other people in our lives that you have given us, so that we're not alone. I pray, Lord, that we would not take our relationships for granted, that we would not see them as simply something for ourselves. I pray also that right now, as I prayed at the beginning of our time in your word, that if you have brought to mind a friend or a spouse or a neighbor or someone who we have not treated rightly, that we would go to them, ask for forgiveness, seek reconciliation. Lord, I pray for those who may be hurting right now because someone has mistreated them. I pray for reconciliation even in that. Lord, I pray for all of our relationships to be right. And I pray that we would do our part to make them so Lord I do pray for our marriages I pray Lord that you would make them strong I pray Lord that you would keep Satan away I pray that his temptations would not bring destruction Lord I know that in a strong marriage in a strong family you are able to do so much And I know that's why Satan especially wants to attack where he sees you working and doing great things. And none of us are immune to selfishness or temptation or unfaithfulness. So Lord, I pray that we would be committed to you, to our spouses, and that, Lord, we would not allow that in our marriages. Lord, I pray also relationships right now that aren't where they should be. Maybe it is a marriage that's struggling or falling apart. Maybe there has been separation but no divorce yet. Maybe there are personal relationships with family or friends that just are a wreck and a mess. Lord, I know that you can always restore. You can always change hearts. You can always reconcile. And so I pray for that. Lord, I know each reconciliation is a picture of your grace and your power. Lord, you have reconciled us to you. I know you can reconcile us to each other. And finally, Lord, I pray for this church that we call home. Lord, I pray our relationships in this church are so close and so Christ-like that this community does see us and say, that's where I need to be. Those are the people I need to hang out with because I see God Himself in their midst. Lord, may that be our testimony. And I pray that it would be a loud one as well. And I pray all these things, Jesus, in Your precious name. Amen. Stand with me, please. We're going to close our service, but it is a time not just to sing, but a time to respond. So Pastor Brandon and myself will be here If you have any need, you want me to pray with you, we will do that. If you want to make any commitment, sure to the Lord. I would also encourage you to go find a friend if you need to. Right now, at this time, in this sanctuary, or make a call or visit this afternoon. We have been called to live in unity and Christ-likeness with one another. May it be so in this moment and every day. So let's make that right now as we pray, as we respond, as we sing.